Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Books still exist. They do. Remember books? They're paper with ink on them. You turn the pages. And I'm very pleased today we have uh, Ken Gloss with us who knows a little bit about talking about books. Everybody has grown up with books, but I wonder sometimes, what about the future of books? You know, sometimes I think, well, people used to say that uh, VHS movies would be the end of movie theaters. Not hardly. I'm hoping that's the case with books. Well, Ken Gloss knows a little bit about books. He is proprietor of the internationally known Brattle Bookshop in Boston's downtown crossing. Brattle Books is considered one of North America's best bookstores. Ken is a frequent guest appraiser on PBS Antiques Roadshow, history of a historic bookshop which goes back to around, oh, 1825, and also about what makes a book go up in value. Ken Gloss, thanks so much for being with us. Let me ask you, are e-books replacing regular books? What is the impact of e-books on good old-fashioned page-turner books? E-books, commun- I, I wouldn't say it's even as much e-books. I'd say it's just the general change in the way people obtain information. It's the computer, it's the Kindle, it's the e-book. It's, they're all having their effect, and it's change. And I, I can't say whether it's good or bad. It's just change that's never going to go back. But there are some areas where it's huge, huge differences who uses an encyclopedia anymore? Oh, true. If you want, if you want a book purely because you needed the information and reference, those are going. Those are going. Those are, for the most part, people aren't using. People don't use dictionaries anymore. Ooh. So that type of thing, I think, yes, they're being replaced and being replaced instantly. There are many reference books uh, that you might have had big, thick volumes of catalogs in a desk, in a library, that you needed to find one piece of information. That's all online now. Uh, In another way, it's affecting, since I deal with used, rare, and out-of-print books, it's affecting right now that a lot of these books that we thought were rare, impossible to find, you'd find them once in a lifetime. Now you go click-click on a certain site, you find 50 copies of them, Mm. you realize they were just hard to find, they weren't rare, and the prices have come down. I guess one of my issues about e-books is, maybe not for right now, but of course, used books depend on there being used books. When you deal with e-books, there are no used books. Yeah, true. 
And matter of fact, one of the things, in a way, if you look at it, uh, years and years ago, publishers tried to stop used books from being sold because it felt they were cutting into their new sales. With e-books, you actually never own the book. You just own the right to have it on your device and read it, but you can't give it to a friend. You can't pass it on. You can't sell it. So you're really, in a sense, just renting it. Hmm. <laughs> but people do get to read it. But I don't know. I'm clearly old-fashioned because I like, I really, I have a Kindle. It's gathering dust on a shelf somewhere. I like good old-fashioned books. I, you know, I grew up that way, and uh, it's it's what I'm used to. Now, what you're in the used and antique book business, uh, what makes a book go up in value? Has that process started to change of late, or is it the same process it's been for a while? Well, it's probably the same process it's been for a while, although there's always trends and changes and so on. Basically, a book has to be historically, scientifically, literarily, or for some other reason important that there are a group of collectors who decide they want it and, you know, are willing to buy it. And, uh, you know, a lot of collecting is prestige, too. It's being able to say, look, I've got the best. I've got the most wonderful. Essentially, I have what you don't have, and people can afford it. It's prestige. They, they are willing to pay that price. But there's always something about it, whether it's the author, the edition, the binding, the subject material. Uh, it's something that makes a group of people want it. You can have books that are incredibly rare, impossible to get, and quite honestly, the people who want them are even rarer, and they have no value. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, I suppose supply and demand. <laughs> supply and demand to a large degree. And, you know, uh, for instance, a first edition of Dickens, Hemingway, or so on, might not be that hard to get. They're just somewhat expensive. On the other hand, a first edition of some author who's unknown and unheard of might be impossible to get, but who cares? Who cares, right. Well, I have to ask about, I'm thinking about my own uh, little library that I have. I have some uh, books that are autographed by the authors. I have some that are autographed by Gore Vidal. I got to interview him years ago, a few by Abby Hoffman. And I actually do have a first edition. Oh, gosh. I think it was called The Politics of Ecstasy by Timothy Leary. First edition also, also autographed by him. Is there any market for that stuff? or is it yeah. just? Yes, there is. Uh, probably Gore Vidal signed more. I mean, he was a much more prominent author. He yeah. was you know, writing for a lot longer. And what would really determine the value in his books would be his first few books are a lot uh, rarer, a uh, lot harder to get. When he was out doing the tours, right. maybe to a station like WBCN in Boston. That's where I interviewed him. Signing a lot. So probably his a signature on an average book, you know, that was later in his right. career, might add 50 75 maybe even $100 depending on how it's done, uh, early in the career, more. Uh, Abby Hoffman didn't sign as many books. So if you have, let's say, a copy of Steal This Book, which a lot of the new bookstores wouldn't even carry sure. because of the title. <laughs> Absolutely. And there was huge controversy over that. Oh, yeah. You know, that might add $100 to the book. If he wrote a long inscription, maybe talking about to the Chicago uh, uh -huh. you know, demonstrations, even more so. 
and then um, as far as the last one, uh, yeah, I mean, it, they're not, it's not as common. And, yeah, it, it would add some, not huge amounts of money. But I'm guessing, and if you just tuned in, our guest today, I'm very pleased to have Ken Gloss, who is proprietor of the internationally known Brattle Bookshop, who knows, who's often on uh, uh, PBS's Antiques Roadshow about books. And again, what makes it worthwhile is, is you talk about some of the price of those books. To me, I like having them. That's why anybody would buy them and pay money for them. You know, to me, it's more valuable than 50 or 100 bucks. You know, I just, it's kind of cool to have them. And well, it, it's also, that's your interest. When, when you look at the book, when you take it off the shelf, you remember the events of the 60s, 70s on the ones that you're mentioning, or Abby Hoffman, who I guess you knew. And, yeah. you know, so it, even just having that book on the shelf, looking at it, but taking it out and touching it yeah. brings back all of those memories. And many, many times when I go to houses, estates, and so on, the issue isn't as much the monetary as it's the sentimental Absolutely. value. Well, that's why I would think people who are collectors pay for it. It's some other value because, you know, the book is worth more than, you know, those dollar bills. Kids these days, it seems to me, I, I've heard young people, when I say young people, I mean like eh, kids, say, 18 through 30, sometimes they romanticize about that particular period, the late 60s counterculture and the anti-war movement. And I wonder about, you know, how long after a particular era has ended, does it take for retrospective books to become published and popular? I wonder how predictable it is. And another part of the question is, do young people actually pick up and read such books? A lot of questions. Well, I, think they, I think they do, and I think there is a lot of interest. Uh, a cousin of mine teaches a course at Suffolk University on just the year 1968, which he felt was one of the more critical years. Oh, yeah. uh, and, but he teaches a course to college students. The course is always full. Uh, people are always reading and getting more material. So, yes, there is an interest. And, and a lot of times, too, there's lots of things that end up in government archives, in court records, in people's um, personal papers that sometimes can take 20, 30, 40, 50 years to become public, mm -hmm. and then you can really look at and see what the history was, what maybe people wouldn't say up front or when other people were alive. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't want to make these comments while maybe some associates, colleagues, or friends uh, were alive and didn't want to be saying, oh, look what I just did, or look at what you just did. And so many times it does take that 50, 100 years looking back in perspective for things to get into library, special collections, and so on. Another great uh, special collection that I know is collecting actively is at UMass Amherst. They have a whole counterculture uh, collection that they keep building on. And as that gets larger, then graduate students, writers can come to it and really write their books. So usually it takes some time. Usually there's a big number of books that come out contemporary then it usually dies down a little, mm -hmm. and then, then the ones with the more information, and it can be fascinating. But yes, students still do read. They still are interested. And the reality is if some of it they read off of e-books or on a computer or they read it from the actual book, they're still reading and getting the knowledge. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it, it does seem 
I'm a student of history, certainly, and it seems like there's some kind of relatively predictable dynamic about time having to pass, you know, enough time so that people can get nostalgic. I mean, I'm a little bit amazed. It's, uh, there's some, it seems, nostalgia for the 80s these days. Enough time has passed so that uh, maybe people want to read about that. I wonder, is there a predictable period of time before people want to look back and, and get a sense of it? Well, I, I think that, you know, that 20, 30 years, yeah. definitely. I mean, quite honestly, I went to Woodstock. I as did I. Maybe I saw you there. I even go to the Antiques Roadshow, and some of the appraisers there say, gee, what was it like? I mean, right. these are people who deal in popular culture, and they're fascinated, interested, and so on. So, in and many times, too, with this amount of time, you get a very intelligent younger people who might be in their 20s, 30s, 40s, but they want to talk to people who have right experience, get the first-hand accounts. And I'll tell you another thing in collecting that I find is fascinating is a lot of times when you've read the history of a period, but then I come across newspapers from the Civil War, from the Revolutionary War, and you realize you've read it in the history book a certain way because that's the way you studied it in school. That's the way the authors wrote it. But then when you read the accounts at the time from the people, you realize there might have been two, three, four different angles on this. When the Constitution was coming out, not everybody was in favor of forming a country. For sure. Uh, the whole idea of the Federalist Papers was to get the states to vote for it. There was a lot of opposition. So you, and you read through the newspapers, uh, and you get that first-hand account, and people look back on that and say, gee, what I read in history, maybe mm -hmm. were, were other sides, people looking at it uh, differently. And, you know, which is a tremendous lesson, because then you realize even now, you know, the history of the 2000 period you look at it a certain way, it might get taught a certain way, and people 50 years from now might say, wait a minute, there were different opinions. Oh, that's one of the most incredible things about going to primary sources. And so much of we, what kids get taught as history it becomes, well, it's, it's frankly more official myth. You know, there's like the party line almost. And, you know, the people who were there, the primary sources, the newspapers and people at the time, it's quite different. I mean, you look at how the Vietnam War is written about these days. It seems the revisionist history says that, oh, you know, gee, we should have won. We could have won. It was just the, the damn protesters who kept us from winning. That is not reality at all. But that's, you know, the, the official line these days, it seems. Well, you no, know, absolutely. And, and uh, I, I agree with that. And, of course, history normally, when you go way back, is hidden, written by the winners. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so you have that look. But one of the reasons that when you were saying that, going back and people saying we should have won, we should have done this, just today I got an email from a lady. She had a letter of Jefferson Davis. Whoa. Now, the, the letter was written 20 years after the Civil War, and he was saying, if only General Hooker had done what I told him to do, the North never would have swept through the South and we would have won the war. So, you know, I mean, not that you would have wanted to win. Well, here's back, you know, 120, 30 years, people saying, look, if we had done this or that, writing revisionist history right then and there at the time. And again, with Vietnam, I'm sure, 
you know, you're going to get all the sides, although there was a lot of protest at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, even when you look back at the uh, Chicago uh, convention and what was going on there, it, but, yeah, they, they wrote it different ways, different people's uh, outlooks, and as the people who were there start writing their histories and accounts, you will look at it differently. Yeah, and it will change over time. I mean, right now... You know, there could be one official history, but 10, 15 years from now, it could be something else that's, uh, you know, sort of the accepted, uh, uh, you know, line about it. If you just tuned in, our guest right now is Ken Gloss. Talk about the history of his historic bookshop, which again goes back to around 1825. Books are just uh, so fascinating. What about, you know, these days, the... The Republican Party has swung what appears to me, from my perspective, pretty far to the right. It's, you know, I, I read a wonderful book by uh, uh, Claire Connor is her, her name, and, and she wrote a book uh, just last year about growing up uh, as a parent. Uh, her parents were very, very active in the National John Birch Society, and she's just amazed at how that point of view seems to be popular now. And one of the things uh, that many people on the left and the former middle uh, are amazed at is that the right seems to be rejecting science. I, is, and part of that, I have to ask Ken Gloss as a, as a book dealer, looking at history, is reading sometimes seen as a subversive activity? And what do you think the, uh, the hard right, which rejects science, what do they think? I mean, the idea I saw, there was a wonderful bumper sticker. It said, uh, critical thinking, the other national deficit. I thought that was brilliant. Is reading a subversive activity, is it something that people should feel good about that we have the right to read lots of different books here in America? Well, I think, I think obviously, with, with what I do, uh, yes, I think everybody should read as much as you can. You can <laughs> never read everything. That's never going to happen. But... Look at all, nowadays, look at all the books, and this has been going on for years, that are banned from libraries. People don't want Harry Potter. They don't want The Wizard of Oz. They don't want many things. But, you know, that's nothing new. I mean, if you go back to the band in Boston, when Darwin came out with Origin of the Species, I mean, it was a huge scandal. Still is, by many uh, (laughs) cases. Uh, If you look at the church's banned book list, uh, that's always been the issue. It was illegal to teach slaves how to read. Oh I mean, that was outright, there were laws against it, because if the more knowledge you get, the more you can think of on your own, the more you can decide for yourself. Now, you might not agree with what someone decides one way or the other, but I think we pretty well figured out that the more information is out there, the more it's available for the public, the more people can decide for themselves the better the decisions. I mean, I was just, we had, um, when they were doing the Whitey Bulger movie, Johnny Depp was in and all that. But I think one of the real problems with that whole thing is the FBI is so secretive in what they're doing that people don't know what's going on. And whenever you get a very secretive organization, be it the FBI, the national security, and so on, it always gets carried too far. So I think information, reading, getting it out there, so on and so forth, is so important. And in general, you know, with a few exceptions, 
probably the more information, the more people know, the more they can decide on their own, the better the decision you're going to get. And that's always been a subversive way because many times, be it the church, the state, the religious, uh, whatever empire, however, uh, the people who are in control want to control the information too. That's right. And the whole printing press was pretty subversive <laughs> way back in what? Well, yeah, the, the printing press was, and it was a change, and it allowed, much like the Internet has done nowadays, uh, it allowed the information to get there. And as long as you were printing, you know, religious books and Bibles, you were fine. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, when modern Luther came along, sure. probably 100 years after, 75 years after, people didn't think too much of that. Uh, when Copernicus was, and they were publishing his books for the first time, didn't think much of that. And, you know, some of the things that come out that people are against, there's good reason you oppose it, but at least you know why. Yes. Knowledge is power, for sure. So, young people, whether they read in, you know, old-fashioned books or on e-books or on the Internet, do you have any sense, Ken Gloss, are people reading more now, less? Is it about the same? I mean, you go around the country with, you know, the Brattle Bookshop and the uh, Antiques Roadshow. I, I have no sense of, of, of if interest in reading is going up, staying the same, or going down. What's your sense? I, I honestly think that reading, in maybe not the same way we think of it, is going up tremendously. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, if I wanted to get in touch with a friend, you'd call. Uh, and you talk on the phone, and you might not read, or you wouldn't write a letter, or whatever. Nowadays, maybe you don't particularly like the grammar or the usage in emails, messages, uh, tweets, and all that, but I think more and more and more young people are on their devices reading what someone else is doing. It might be a different type of reading. It might be uh, reading blogs. Also, you can do it cheaply, easily, and quickly, and I think that's a huge advantage. Mm. I have a daughter who spent a lot of time in Africa, and the fact that you can be in the middle of almost nowhere, as long as there's a cell coverage or an Internet coverage, that those people can access essentially all the great libraries of the world Mm. cheaply, easily, and free, I mean, that's a tremendous boon. So I think people are reading more if you consider emails, tweets, messaging, uh, and so on, it just might not be the standard reading. And the fact that someone can be in the middle of nowhere and there's a book that they want to get, they can instantly get it, read it when they want to read it, or read a blog, you know, if it's a, a radio show blog or a podcast. I think that there's actually much more of that going on as opposed to maybe writing the letter the way the Victorians or up until recently did. Yeah, interesting. And and it does seem that, again, you know, the truth shall make you free. And you think about the uh, Internet, the power of the Internet in the so-called uh, Arab Spring a couple of three years ago, and how people everywhere in the world can have access to this stuff, and the powers that be really can't control it. That, that's kind of a, a good thing. and it, it, it Well, on the other hand... The way I look at it is the Internet's a tool, and if you use the tool well, you do great. There are a lot of people who use the Internet just to reinforce whatever they want, and they don't want to look at anything else. But 
that's their decision. And, uh, and many times, too, I know I read the uh, blogs, things from the totally opposing views, but then I realize what, where the views are going, why, try to figure out why they're going there. And quite honestly, occasionally, I go, you know, that's not as crazy as I thought it was. Well, that's the idea of books, getting it out on paper, having that freedom that uh, I love learning new stuff, you know, stuff that I thought I understood. Whoa. I mean, I'm reading about World War I all the time. It's just fascinating. You talk about uh, Jefferson Davis saying if Hooker had done this, you know, if lots of things happened differently in all these wars and situations, they could have turned out differently. And is it fun to read that? Heck, yes, I think it is. Some people might say, well, this is how it turned out. What's the point? I think there's a tremendous point in, in just seeing things can turn on a dime. I got to ask the, the old saying, history, if you don't know it, it will repeat itself. Yeah, for sure. I got to ask about publishing these days. My sense is that the publishing world has drastically tightened up. It, it's much harder for new authors to get published. Is, is that accurate? What do you know about this? Well, we don't deal as much with publishers, but it's much harder to get published by a mainstream publisher who is going to put a huge effort behind book tours, uh, you know, promoting and selling the book. Obviously, with the Internet, if you have a book, you can self-publish almost yeah. anything you want. The hard part then is getting people to read it, want it. And I still think when you're talking with the good mainline publishers, a good editor is so important. And that's something that people who say we self-publish, self-do this, a few are geniuses, it will come over wonderfully. But 90% of people uh, need an editor, and a good editor. I am sure. I know that myself. I'm trying to get a book published myself. I should talk to you later about that, what you know about it. But uh, if uh, Ken Gloss, uh, thanks for being with us. His Brattle Bookshop is internationally known. It's now in Boston's downtown crossing. It used to be in Brattle Square in Cambridge, did it not? No, it was in Scully Square in Boston. Scully Square. It was, that's where we started. You know, also, one of the big draws of my talks, I think people like to hear me, but at the end, I do free appraisals and uh-huh. draws a lot of people in, want to see what they have in their attics. It's, it should be fun. And I'm guessing there's something on the Internet that people can find out more about Brattle Books and about you, Ken Gloss. In the webpage, brattlebookshop.com, and it, w- it will all come up. Well, thank you so much. Very interesting. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. We'll be back talking about uh, oh, politics in a minute. remember like it was only yesterday. Love was young and foolish like a little child of play. But oh, how lovers change. I never dreamed out easily For now I'm just a shadow Of the boy I used to be A fool to myself 
when I kept on running around And I fared a little better When I tried settling down Maybe some magic moment Heaven on but not for long For all too soon the magic Was in a moment gone Well, when they write the book about this particular period in history, yeah. oh man, we haven't seen how it's going to end up yet. But uh, we can keep democracy alive, I think. It's going to take a lot of effort. On this part of the show, we're going to be talking about uh, the nominee to the Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has come a long way since the greats uh, like uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, Felix Frankfurter, Earl Warren, William O. Douglas. We've come a long way since then. There had been a long tradition whereby the court reliably protected the rights of the little guy against the perceived injustices by big-moneyed powers, be it private corporations or the government. Workers' safety and working conditions were protected by the U.S. Supreme Court. In the Pentagon Papers case, the court took on and beat the Nixon administration enshrining freedom of the press. The court solidified rights of privacy when it comes to women's reproductive rights, of course, in Roe v. Wade. And in 2015, it protected same-sex marriage rights. That, like many vital decisions, came on a 5-4 to four vote. 5-4. to four. With the death of hard right-wing Justice Antonin Scalia, a vacancy has existed, and it's been an eight-person court for quite some time. The Republicans in the Senate, of course, defied tradition and refused to allow discussion or a vote on President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, who I might add was hardly a raging liberal in the court's tradition of liberalism, protecting us from the overreach of government. Now, of course, President Trump has nominated Neil Gorsuch, and hearings on his nomination have been held. Of course, as Americans who treasure our constitutional rights, any nominee by the orange one is looked upon with skepticism. We're talking about our rights as citizens, a great many of which hang by a thread in this nine-member body, which is equal in power to the executive and legislative branches of government. On this part of Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll talk with Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, who has written about uh, Neil Gorsuch and, and what is at stake here. Thank you so much for being with us, Marjorie. My pleasure, Bert. Thanks for having me. Well, why is it such a priority for the Bannon-Trump administration to confirm Neil Gorsuch? Well, Steve Bannon has advocated what he calls the deconstruction of the administrative state. And that basically means deregulation. And this is something that Trump talked about throughout the campaign. And he has actually... Um, issued some executive orders saying that uh, it, it basically uh, ev- two regulations should be eliminated for every new one, very mechanistic and artificial. And he also signed a um, an order capping spending on new regulations during 2017 and, and 
recently, more recently, he signed an executive order rolling back Dodd-Frank regulations on Wall Street, and this is going to increase the risk of another dangerous recession. Mm. But, you know, Bert, um, recently, Chief of Staff Reince Priebus addressed the Conservative Political Action Committee, and he identified... Uh, two priorities, another was immigration, but two, the two priorities he mentioned first were the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court and deregulation. And it turns out that achieving de- deregulation and getting Gorsuch on the bench on the, the high court are inextricably linked. Um, there is a well-established doctrine called Chevron deference. And that's something that even Justice Scalia favored. Um, And and basically, that is, uh, when a law is ambiguous, courts must defer to an agency's reasonable construction of the statute. Um, It's called Chevron deference. But Neil Gorsuch wants to do away with Chevron deference. And he actually wrote a concurrence saying maybe the time has come to face the behemoth. The problem is Hmm. that Doing away with Chevron deference um, would tie the hands of the people, of the agencies that Congress has recognized have the depth and experience to enforce Uh. important laws that safeguard essential protections and health and safety. Um, For example, um, courts following this Chevron deference have deferred to the National Labor Relations Board's reasonable determination that live hall workers are employees entitled to protection of the National Labor Relations Act. Um, They have deferred to the EPA's rule requiring states to reduce admissions from power plants um, that travel across state lines and harm downwind state. They've deferred to the Department of Labor's interpretation of portions of the Black Lung Benefits Act that make it easier for coal miners afflicted with black lung disease to receive compensation. Hmm. And another example is they've de- courts have deferred to the EPA's revision of regulations under the Toxic Substances Control Act that provide more protection from exposure to lead paint. Um, but, you know, I think a really good example of not applying Chevron deference and the harm it causes, and this is what, what uh, you know, Gorsuch would like to do is to do away with this Chevron deference, is in the now infamous frozen trucker case. Uh, I was going to ask um, about that. you want that. me to just... Yeah, yeah. I was, a about that. I, yeah. It, it, well, for, first, you know, this this whole idea, you know, I think a lot of times people don't understand, you know, these government agencies. They, they get confused. They don't know really what they do. But they're these the EPA, the Department of Labor, things like that are there to protect our rights. Without that, you know, the uh, they, they they can the government or the corporations can pollute willy nilly and, you know, too bad if your health is hurt, if you, if, even if you're killed. And, right. And, you know, people... Right. I, I, and there are experts in these agencies who are in the best yes. position to interpret these rules, to protect mm. the people that the agencies are designed to protect. Yeah. I'm reading a book now about uh, the uh, development of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court and, and, and talking about uh, experts, you know, and how important experts are that can be separate from the government and separate from uh, the corporate powers, and that uh, you know some of the early uh, liberal uh, justices, Brandeis, etc., uh, you know, really believed in that stuff. But now they're trying to undo that to be on the side of uh, the polluters. And, and yeah, I had never heard of first. I had not heard of the Chevron deference. A good explanation there. 
the uh, the trucker. The, the uh, tell us about this uh, frozen trucker case. What does it say about Gorsuch? This is fascinating. Well, this and scary. is really pretty outrageous. And some of the senators, particularly Al Franken, during the uh, confirmation hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee for Gorsuch, right. really f- highlighted it. Um, the, a man named Alphonse Madden was driving a truck for Trans Am Trucking when the brakes froze on the trailer he was hauling. A heater inside the truck wasn't working. The temperature outside was 27 below zero. Mm. So Madden mm. contacted his employee. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just, that's very, very cold. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So Madden contacted his employer who arranged for a repair unit to come. And while he was waiting for the help to arrive, Madden nodded off. And then he awoke three hours later. He couldn't feel his feet. His skin was burning and cracking. His speech was slurred. He was having trouble breathing. He said he was on the verge of passing out. He thought that if he fell, he wouldn't have the strength to stand up and he would die. He was basically exhibiting symptoms of hypothermia. So Madden called his employer again to report that he was leaving to seek shelter, and his his supervisor ordered him either to drag the trailer with no brakes, which would have been, have been a very dangerous thing, or stay put with the cargo, the meat in the cargo. And uh, clearly, and Madden said, in my opinion, clearly their cargo was more important than mm. my life. And mm. so he had two choices. Madden was faced with either defying his employer's order to remain with his di- disabled trailer or freezing to death. So Madden chose to unhitch the trailer and drive his truck to safety. Well, Trans Am fired Madden for disobeying orders, and Madden filed a complaint with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is an agency of the Department of Labor. So this is the, this is the, the, the words in the statute uh, at issue. Um, the statute forbids employers from firing an employee who refuses to operate a vehicle because the employee has a reasonable apprehension of serious injury to the employee or the public. So the Labor Department found that Trans Am violated the law, and mm-hmm. they concluded, the, the agency here, concluded that the word operate includes not only driving, but also other uses of a vehicle when it's within the control of the employee. In other words, Madden had refused to operate his vehicle in the manner his employer had ordered with a trailer hitched to the truck. Now, seven judges ultimately ruled on that case. Gorsuch was the only one who voted to uphold Madden's firing and he said Madden did right. operate his vehicle and uh, and because it says employee who operates the vehicle and he went to the to, to the uh, Oxford English dictionary to to look it up um, and so in his dissent and remember this was 27 below outside the truck um, he was freezing in his dissent um, in this case because he was the only judge who would have upheld the firing Gorsuch described the conditions Madden faced as merely cold weather and he wrote that Madden, for Madden to sit and wait for help to arrive was an unpleasant option. Now, Madden's lawyer, Robert Fetter, um, told Democracy Now!, he said, Judge Gorsuch was incredibly hostile. I've litigated many cases in appellate courts. Gorsuch may have been the most hostile judge I've ever appeared before. But what Gorsuch was doing in his dissent was refusing to apply Chevron deference, yes. was refusing to defer to the Department of Labor's interpretation of that statutory language. And, uh, and this is, is really, really serious, because that means that um, the, and, and because um, 
Bannon is so intent on deconstructing yes. the administrative state and deregulation, and, and Trump has already started with the deregulation. Um, this means that the Trump administration, with the help of Gorsuch, ultimately on the Supreme Court, will start to neuter these agencies that protect us, protect workers, protect the environment. Um, there are two more executive orders that mandate deregulation that Trump has signed. Um, actually, the, the Trump administration has issued Priebus, directed agency heads to refrain from sending new regulations to the Office of the Federal Register until there are Trump administration officials in place. Um, and then Trump also signed a memo directing his Secretary of Commerce to review the ways in which federal regulations affect U.S. manufacturers in order to reduce as many of them as possible. So... Here you have um, Neil Gorsuch, who is is really key to the the agenda, the no. the Bannon agenda. And you know, it's interesting because during Gorsuch's hearing, he came across as a really nice guy, right. compassionate. Um, <clears throat> he was pressed Smooth. by some of the Democratic senators about his ideology, and Gorsuch made the dis disingenuous claim: there is no such thing as Republican a, a Republican judge or a Democratic judge. We just have judges in this country. Well, if that's the case, Bert, why are the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, the right-wing organization, so keen on Gorsuch? He was on a list prepared by them no. from which Trump selected his Supreme Court nominee, and. Um, Patrick Leahy, one of the senators at the hearing, told Gorsuch, the president outsourced your selection to far-right big-money groups, and they have an agenda. They're confident you share their agenda. Um, Senator Whitehouse um, confronted Gorsuch with the $10 million in dark money, secret money, spent my, by anonymous conservative donors to buy Gorsuch a seat on the Supreme Court, and also $7 million was spent on the, as you said, the the campaign to prevent Merrick Garland from even getting a hearing, and that was unprecedented. Um, and Schumer, uh, Chuck Schumer, mm -hmm. said um, he announced he would vote against Gorsuch's nomination, and he mm -hmm. said, we do not want judges with ice water in their veins. Um, and that's how he characterized Gorsuch, and I think that that's a, an apt characterization. I mean, if you look at his record, um, he is, the, the right-wingers are just thrilled. They're thrilled with him. Um, he um, is a, a strong advocate of gun rights and the death penalty. Mm. He opposes death with dignity, and he defers to religious organizations about whether they will follow the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obama, mm -hmm. to provide birth control for their employees. And um, it, you know, Elizabeth Warren um, mm -hmm. issued a statement some time ago, and she correctly said that Gorsuch has sided with employers who deny wages, improperly fired workers, retaliate or um, with, with employers who deny wages, improperly fire workers, or retaliate against whistleblowers for misconduct. He has ruled against workers in all manner of discrimination cases, and he's demonstrated hostility toward women's access to basic health care. So even though he has not specifically ruled on abortion, right. if you take his, his um, decisions in the Affordable Care Act cases saying it's okay for uh, a, a religious organization to deny birth control to their employees, and you take that um, together with some of the statements he made in his book about assisted suicide or death with dignity, I don't think there's any doubt 
that he is, if not given the chance to overrule Roe v. Wade, which he said was precedent, entired to, in, in, entitled to respect, yeah, yeah. Um, to chip away at it, which is what the Supreme Court's been doing, to place burdens on the right for women to control their own bodies. Um, and there are many other things. I mean, another thing to keep in mind, Bird, is that Gorsuch calls himself an originalist. Now, the only originalist on the court right now is Thomas. Um, Scalia was an originalist. It's a really outmoded doctrine, uh, very, which, which uh, legal scholars and courts have, have basically don't take seriously. It basically says that the Constitution should be interpreted in light of the public meaning at the time it was written. In other words, 1789. And the problem is, that, and, and also it goes along with his textualism, which means that you look at the words in the statute, and if it's not there, you don't find that right. For example, the right to privacy, which right. is the basis of Roe v. Right. Wade, is not, the words are not in the Constitution. So the logical extension of this originalism would mean that states could ban the purchase and sale of birth control, the federal government could engage in racial discrimination, um, could mandate racial segregation in schools, could exclude African Americans from serving in the military, um, the federal government could discriminate against women by preventing them from uh, occupying high governmental positions, okay. states could bring back segregation under this originalism, state and federal governments could do away with one person, one vote, um, states could establish Christianity as their official religion, and the federal government could invalidate environmental laws, including the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. There wouldn't be any more protection, and this is a logical extension of Gorsuch's originalism. No more protection of the rights to marry, procreate, mm. purchase and use contraception, abortion, refuse medical care, and engage in private consensual homosexual activity. In fact, when the Supreme Court found a constitutional right to marriage equality mm -hmm. over Scalia's objection mm. in Obergefell versus Hodges, the majority specifically rejected originalism and embraced the idea of a living constitution whose meaning evolves. Sure. Um, when Scalia came to my school, Thomas Jefferson, in uh, I was about ten or fifteen years ago. Um, he called, he kind of derided his colleagues who didn't, weren't originalists as evolutionists, um, you know, because they interpreted the Constitution in the light of, uh, in light of present day. So you see some real, real disturbing indications about Gorsuch. He's not just another conservative who will bring, restore the balance on the court mm -hmm. to where it was before Scalia died. Um, he's actually to the right of Scalia on mm. this uh, oh, opposition okay. to Chevron deference. He's very, very worrisome. Oh, but he looks so smooth. Nice haircut. You know, he, he gave a nice presentation. What could be wrong? People don't, you know, people think, well, Trump, you know, maybe we'll get Trump out of there. He's so crazy. You know, he's losing it. Maybe we'll just get a, a President uh, Mike Pence, you know, and that'll make things okay. Well, no. You know, people... I, I'm sure, Marjorie Cohen, you agree with me that when people vote in an election, they don't think so much about the Supreme Court. But this is huge. This is uh, the right it, wing does. Yeah, I don't exactly. Think the Democrats yes. do, unfortunately, I don't think they don't people get understand it. what is at stake here. I really so do. many of our rights and so many things we, you know, just take for granted about you know being protected from pollution, having some protection for for uh, you know working conditions, and and that uh, that case you described, the frozen trucker case. This is some serious stuff that could affect everybody. And this, a Supreme Court, is not just a four-year term; it's for life. 
It's for right. life. It's true. Oh my. There's, there's another thing we need to talk about here, Bert, and that is that before um, Neil Gorsuch was appointed by George W. Bush to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, he worked in the Bush administration's Department of Justice from 2005 to 2006. Okay. And he argued against Guantanamo detainees who wanted to bring habeas corpus petitions um, to challenge their indefinite detention. He opposed the Detainee Treatment Act's prohibition of cruel treatment. Um, he argued that enhanced interrogation, which is a euphemism of t- for torture, works. He defended Bush's warrantless surveillance. Um, and, you know, after, after um, visiting Guantanamo, where guards were violently force-feeding prisoners, right. Gorsuch wrote to the prison operation commander, he wrote, I was extraordinarily impressed. You and your colleagues have developed standards and imposed a degree of professionalism that the nation can be proud of. Mm. And being able to see firsthand all that you've managed to accomplish with such a difficult and sensitive mission makes my job of helping explain and defend it before the courts all the easier. And you know what is going to come before the Supreme Court when Gorsuch is on it? The uh, Trump's Muslim ban. And given his deference to the executive, to the, to the president, when he was in the D- Department of Justice, he is likely to vote to uphold the Muslim ban. Oh um, and, and that would be absolutely, uh, it would be an outrage. It really would. And, uh, you know, he has defended um, expansive claims of executive authority that are unreviewable, um, in in uh, national security issues, unreviewable by courts, even though at his confirmation hearing he, he kept making the kind of simplistic uh, statement, nobody's above the law, which really did not answer how much deference the courts should give to the executive, to the president, in matters of immigration and national security. And that's really one of the big issues in the litigation over the travel ban right now. So, you know, on almost every level... Um, Gorsuch would be a frightening justice, and he's 49 years old, oh, which my. means that he would be with us for Oof. years, for wow, decades. decades. And especially in light of the fact that Merrick Garland right. should rightfully be on the, on the Supreme Court, um, I think it's really, really essential that the Democrats filibuster and force the Republicans to exercise what's called the nuclear yes. option to require that they get 60 votes. And in order to, to confirm Gorsuch, in order for the Republicans to get 60 votes, they would have to peel off eight Democrats. They're not going to do now, that. Um, Schumer has said that they're going to filibuster, but they're still counting votes, um, still 16 senators undecided. Um, and by the mm. way, your listeners might want to know about a website called calloutgorsuch.com. That's ah. G-O-R-S-U-C-H, calloutgorsuch.com, um, which is organizing a campaign to send letters to senators all over the country to filibuster this nomination. Well, I certainly hope they do, but I, I can't imagine them not, the Republicans, the right wing, not using the nuclear option. And I don't know how much people are going to care, how much they're going to notice if, okay, so they don't, you know, they do away with the requirement for 60 votes and they, they get them in there anyway. Uh, and it seems like I think all the Democrats are on board, but, you know, if maybe they can still get 60 votes. I don't know. I mean, he, people say, well, he's, he's qualified. The general consensus is he's qualified. It seems to me there are many thousands of lawyers and judges who are also technically qualified to serve in the Supreme Court. How much weight do you think the argument that he is qualified will carry among the senators on the committee and, and in the Senate as a whole? 
Well, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that he's qualified on paper. I mean, you know, he, Lots of people he are. has, sure. a, you know, a, a very impressive pedigree in terms of where he went to school and what his experience was. He was a federal judge. He is a federal judge now for 10 years. He's qualified on paper. But that doesn't mean that he is qualified to rule objectively and uh, and and, and with precedent the constitution to really do yeah. justice and i think i think it's important for the democrats and i think, don't think it's an all, a done deal that they're going to do it to filibuster and force the republicans to show that their their support for gorsuch is they they can't even get 50, 60 votes for him that it's you know a bare majority um, and uh, i think that's important i think i think many of them who wouldn't uh, filibuster many Democrats who wouldn't fil- filibuster uh, filibuster him otherwise because he's quote qualified unquote mm-hmm. m- will filibuster him because of the stolen seat because um, nice. the uh, Republicans wouldn't give Merrick Garland a hearing and I think that really incensed Democrats and it's up to us you and me and mm-hmm. people who write in the alternative press to educate people about what's at stake here yeah people don't care because they don't understand right. the facts and we've right. got to get get those facts out to them. Have there been, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Marjorie Cohen, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. We're talking about the threat of Neil Gorsuch, and this is some serious stuff, people here. Have, uh, is there precedent for the nuclear option? When it, I mean, a 60-vote uh, majority is necessary because it's so important. It's so vital to, to our Republican form of government. Is there precedent for that? And then the Supreme Court has to rely on precedent quite a bit. Has it been done before? Is it always 60 votes? Well, these are just Senate rules, and they can change them, ah, uh, you know, willy-nilly. whenever they want. This is the second time in three and a half years that the Senate majority has um, has breached that standard of clearing a two-thirds majority. Um, to to uh, alter the rules, and uh, the first no. time it was when the Democrats were led by Harry Reid. He was the majority leader. They ended the sixty vote filibusters for all nominees except for the Supreme Court. So as the rules ah. stand now in the Senate, um, they can get lower federal court judges confirmed with fifty one votes, a simple majority. But the Supreme Court still requires sixty. Tell us again that uh, website that people should go to. I want to do it one more time before the end of the show. It's calloutgorsuch.com, and that's G-O-R-S-U-C-H, calloutgorsuch.com. My dad used to say, you know, you never know about a Supreme Court nominee. For example, David Souter, one of the more sane and decent justices in recent memories, was appointed by the first President Bush. Isn't there a tradition that no matter who appoints them, the justices often exert their independence? Yes, they do exert their independence. Um, and uh, Justice Souter didn't have the track record that Gorsuch has. I mean, Gorsuch has really tipped his hand in many, many yeah. ways through his 10 years on the bench and his books and other things that he's written. So we know where he's coming from, and he's not going to change. When he was in um, in college, I think it was at Columbia, um, he was writing for... It, it wasn't high school, it was college, I think. He was writing for a uh, publication called The Fed, and he was taking, this was back in college, taking very right-wing positions, was attacking people who were, um, <clears throat> you know, who were opposing apartheid in South Africa, oh etc. And, you know, so he is, he is radical right-wing to his core, and, uh, and I don't think that there's any doubt where his sympathies lie and what kind of judge mm. he will be on the bench. And, you know, it, it, 
some of these people, like Earl Warren was a Republican nominee, Justice Brennan was a Republican nominee, but they had compassion. Mm. They really had compassion, and uh, they saw the... The uh, you know the inequality um, economically and racially when they were deciding cases in the fifties and sixties and that's where we get a lot of the sure. really landmark um, decisions from the Warren Court and uh, they were Republican nominees but Gorsuch does have ice water in his veins yes. Yes. I mean the way that he handled the fr- the uh, frozen trucker oh. case is very very frightening. Yeah, it really is, and it could affect all of us, all of us. So we really need to get on this and, and fight about this. I know there's a lot to fight, and there's always, I mean, every day there's some new bizarre tweet. But this is, I mean, the guy, the fact that the guy is 49 years old, we could have 40 years of this guy. Uh, That's right. And uh, if another one of the justices right. steps down for any reason, oh, and there are three of them that are almost 80 or over 80 in the next four years, assuming Trump lasts four years, which I don't think, I don't he, think will, he will, but however long he lasts, yeah. Um, then that tips the balance radically to the right. Then we lose same-sex marriage, Roe v. Wade. It's you, just, you name it. You oh, go down the list. And protection, those rights, labor rights, just about everything. And right. and, and, and what right. we've known as rights. what we've known as America, boy, right. it wouldn't look the same right. at all. So one last time, what's that website? I want to make sure people get it. CallOutGorsuch.com. CallOutGorsuch.com. I intend to do that. Marjorie Cohen, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. Thank you so much for being with us. We got to fight. We got to stand and fight. We have to do it. We are not powerless, not at all. Get in touch with our senators. Thank you. It's called Rough Justice here by the Rolling Stones. 